we're going to talk about some pretty important stuff today. I think this is going to be the most on-point uh, message for our times of, of the Out of Socket series, because this is, uh, this is a tough one. This is going to hit us all pretty close to home, and so I hope... I hope it hits home in a, in a productive way and not in a threatening way necessarily. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Jacob and Esau. Before I do, I'll just give a little bit of an overview of the importance of why we're doing this. And I know it's really weird and hard uh, for people who are not necessarily Christians, who are all in with Jesus, to come to church and give uh, the church your time, and then to be told to go home and read the Bible, especially the first two-thirds of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament has uh, a lot of challenges for a lot of people, and, uh, and it can feel a little bit like it's not worth the time and effort. And I hear people, especially newer Christians a lot, or people that are kind of burned out on Christianity, will say, I just want to be a New Testament Christian, or I just want to be a red-letter Christian. And, and the more I get into this Jesus thing, the less I believe it's possible to just be a New Testament Christian or a red-letter Christian. I think that if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we have to learn to take the Old Testament seriously and to give it some of our time and attention because um, the Old Testament is, is there for a reason. It's not like it was just God's sloppy first draft before he finally got it right with Jesus. Like there's something to learn from the Old Testament. But what, what happens to us, especially when we are cynical about the Bible or when we're novice readers of the Bible, is that we come to the Bible with some unrealistic or unhelpful expectations of what the Old Testament should be like. If it is the Word of God, if God is good, then the stuff you read in the Old Testament should be good. And the heroes in the Old Testament should be good. And, you know, I think it's just a baseline expectation that you would have normally if you come to any book, but especially the book supposedly called the Word of God, you would expect the good guys to be what? Good guys, right? Like, obviously, but then you open the pages of the Bible, you start reading, and you realize the protagonists, the good guys, aren't that good at all. They're really terrible people sometimes. Most of the time, it surprises you when they do good stuff because they're bad so often, and they're so good at being bad. And so, but these are the guys who are the heroes, and we lift them up. We've lifted them up since we were kids. If you grew up in church, you learned in vacation Bible school to lift these guys up. These are the heroes of the faith. These are the good guys. You're Noah, you're Moses, you're David, you know, all those guys in the Old Testament. And then you realize that these guys you've been taught to lift up aren't worth lifting up. Noah had a binge drinking problem, and Moses was a murderer, and David was an adulterer who also became a murderer because the woman he shacked up with and got pregnant, he had her husband killed. Like, this is the great King David. And so the question then becomes, like, what's a book worth if it's supposed to be holy and good, but the best people in it aren't that good or holy? And so we start to punish the Bible for the characters in it. And when we punish God, we, we wonder if this God's even worth our time. Because if the heroes of this book are trash, then maybe the book itself is trash. And maybe it's just outdated and morally lacking. Maybe it's corrupt. And, you know, we see these things in the Bible and we wonder how this can be called the Word of God at all. You know, the war and the, the suffering, the poverty, the rape, the mistreatment of the oppressed and, you know, all kinds of slavery, all kinds of stuff in the Bible. And so people get kind of a bird's eye view of it and they're like, why? Why read it? Why be devoted to it at all? It's, it's not worthy, right? 
Some of the stuff in the New Testament is, but not so much in the Old Testament. And so you're going to be challenged throughout this series as we dive into that exciting bastion of joy called mid-Genesis. <laughs> as we get into the story of Jacob, you're going to find yourself asking some of the same questions. Why are we doing this? These guys don't seem to be worth the time we're spending on them. And I would challenge you to, instead of being cynical about the Bible and questioning the, the Old Testament, I would challenge you to question your approach to the Old Testament. Because I think most of us, if you have any experience whatsoever with the Bible, most of us come to the Old Testament with some very childish expectations. Because the last time we were serious about the Bible, we were kids. And so we come to it thinking, well, these guys must be superheroes above reproach, living morally good lives. And maybe that's what we should call into question. Maybe you should consider the possibility that the mess in the Old Testament is there for a reason. Maybe it's on purpose. Maybe the people that put the words onto these pages and kept them there for generations and could have changed them over time, the people who were entrusted with the scriptures, who could have whitewashed them and you know, scraped the bad stuff out of the stories of Moses and Noah and David and the rest and just kept the good stuff, they could have given us these, you know, these great men of faith. If they didn't, maybe there's a reason. Maybe it's to teach us something profound about God and the world he chose to enter into in Jesus, because maybe our world today looks a lot like the world did then. Maybe our world today is also corrupt and morally vacant at times and full of war and greed and all these things that we don't love about the Old Testament. And so maybe we should dive in with a different attitude uh, as we look to um, the story of Jacob to see what we might learn, um, rather than just uh, dismissing it because Jacob doesn't fit our idea of the hero mold. So um, I want to dive in today. We're actually going to spend a little more time on Esau today than Jacob. They were twin brothers, as you're going to hear in a moment. If you have a Bible with you, I love you. And if you don't, then I don't. But I'm just saying that because I'm trying to coerce you uh, and manipulate my, my people, my flock here to uh, bring their Bibles with them more. And that's not as a token kind of a churchy thing. I really want us to become more familiarized with our own copies of this book so that when you get home, you know where yours is and you can find it, you can read it, and uh, you can get, dig into it. Now, you don't have to have a physical book like this. You can have it on your phone or whatever. There's apps and stuff. That's A-okay as well. Um, we're going to be in Genesis 25, verses 19 to 26. All right? This is the first passage we're going to read this morning. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, chapter 25, verses 19 to 26. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac, Isaac became the, or Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? Bless you. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> 
Uh, I've read this three times this morning and it gets me every time the thought of a big hairy baby. I don't know why. Is there anything funnier than an ugly baby? No, right? <laughs> so anyway, uh, the whole body was hairy and they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out and his hand gra- with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So they'd been married for 20 years. If you ever dealt with any infertility in your life or someone you love has dealt with infertility, you know what that can do to a couple. They held out. They waited for God's promise um, without trying to, you know, come up with their own answers. They were patient and they prayed and they were given their promise, right? So these twin boys are born. What I want you to see at this part of the story before we continue it and finish it in Genesis 25 is that names matter and Jacob's name matters. I know Jacob is a familiar name now. Any Jacobs in the house, by the way? Anyone? We've got several in the congregation. I did a search. There's like 17 Jacobs at the story. I, I got a feeling there's one or two in the house, but they don't want us to know it. It's good. I, you're, I would have embarrassed you because Jacob is a name that means heel grabber. That's what it means in the Hebrew. It's one who grabs the heel. And uh, the reason this matters is because um, names are indicators of a person's character in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not sure how it happened. I don't know if a name was given to a child and was prophetic, like God or somebody knew that that's who the child would become, or if maybe a child lives up or down to whatever their name implies. You know what I mean? So um, think of a kid named Harvey growing up in Houston now. Like, he's probably not going to have a great life. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... <laughs> It's going to be hard for Harvey. You know what I mean? Um, And so I don't know how it works, but Jacob is called heel grabber. And uh, in Hebrew, heel grabber was a euphemism or a play on words meaning liar. So it gets worse. He wasn't just a heel grabber. He was a liar from his first day, a deceiver. The idea being that a heel grabber is one who trips someone up with their deceit. Right, so you get it, a picture of who Jacob's going to be. You're going uh, to see some traces of that character already coming through in the next few verses we're going to read. But again, we're going to spend more of our time today focusing on Esau. I think Esau probably hits closer to home for all of us. This is verse 27. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter through verse 34. So the boys, Jacob and Esau, they grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. Edom, not like Edom. Edom (laughs) means red. His nickname was Red. Have you all ever known anybody named Red? I have. They were all hicks with straws in their mouth. (laughs) Red. That's Esau. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and then got up and he left. So Esau despised his birthright. So um, I want you to pay attention to the different descriptions of Jacob and Esau here. They matter. 
because the, the writer of the story is trying to paint a picture for you and create in you the expectations that the first hearers of this story would have, would have perceived. So Esau is portrayed as the quintessential male. Esau, we presume to be a manly man. He was everything a man should be in those days. And I know the ideal masculinity image has changed over time a little bit, but, but you know, in some ways it hasn't. I mean, he was a big, strong guy. We can presume he was an outdoorsman. He liked to hunt. He did what men were supposed to do. Men were supposed to go out and hunt and gather and herd and fight. <clears throat> and that's who Esau was. Big old, he had so much testosterone that it grew through his pores and follicles. Like he was just growing hair. It was like a walking rug, just one of those guys. You know what I mean? And big and strong, and he was his dad's favorite, which in a patriarchal society, like ancient Hebrew culture, it mattered. And so he was everything a young man should be. And so it makes sense then that he was the first out, uh, firstborn, and, and the recipient of this birthright. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, was the opposite of all those things. And I know that to us, to hear the description of a man like Jacob isn't surprising. It doesn't shock the conscience now that, like it would have back then, right? But back then, to hear a description of a supposedly heroic character like Jacob, like the one we have here, would have shocked the conscience a little bit. So Jacob, uh, as opposed to wanting to go out and be an outdoorsman, Jacob never wore camouflage in his life. Like he just wanted to stay home among the tents, in the kitchen, cooking meals for the men who would return from the hunt. I want you to kind of get a mental image of Jacob, and, and he was, as it says, a mama's boy. His mom loved him more. So I know there are plenty of women in the room today who wouldn't mind having a bare-chested man who likes to be home cooking for you. Like, that's, uh, the expectations have shifted a little bit over time, but this is not what a man was supposed to be, right? And so um, we're, we're dealing with a little bit of a, of a setup here because we're supposed to see Esau as the rightful heir. And he should have been. He should have been. Esau won the lottery in terms of genetics, right? I always feel like I won the lottery too. This is kind of how I, I resonate with Esau, not that I'm much of a manly man or an outdoorsman. Uh, I think I've got a little hair on my body, like little ones. And, you know, I don't have some of the same things going on as Esau did. I went hunting twice and all that stuff. But, like, I... I'm not the same kind of person, but I do feel like I got really lucky. And I feel like most of us did. Like with how we were born and where we were born and the family we were born into and the stuff we've been given. Like there's a lot of power and privilege in this room. We've been given a lot of good stuff. We've been given a, a leg up compared to most other people in this society and every other society that ever lived, most of us. Like we won the lottery. But along with that, there comes a certain amount of, of responsibility. A little bit of pressure that comes with having won the genetic lottery. Like, we're expected to do something great with what we've been given. And the same expectations were on Esau's shoulders. He had it all right in front of him, but he couldn't follow through with it because he was lacking one thing, self-control. He could not control his impulses. And throughout the rest of the Bible, Esau is like 
portrayed as an enemy of God. In Malachi, it says that God despised Esau or hated Esau, which I don't think that means God doesn't love Esau, but I think it means that, the, that there, is within, there was within Esau this tendency to pursue the impulse instead of uh, to have self-control and self-denial. And so God despised that within him, right? And, uh, and so he gave it all away for a simple bowl of soup. Now, to further illustrate this point, I actually brought some soup with me to church today. Would y'all like to see my soup? Here it is. All right. So, thank you, Nathan. Man, every time he brings it out, there's less of it. Uh, this is some red stew, some red chili that, that I did not make. I bought it at Whole Foods for $375. It's free range or something. <laughs> anyway. I love soup as much as the next guy. Anybody else love soup? It's wintertime. Uh, sort of wintertime. It's like 75 degrees outside, but it's Houston winter. And uh, nothing better than a good bowl of soup. And when I moved to Houston, my soup game was upped considerably because uh, Houston has, uh, uh, it's like soup mecca. So uh, part of that is because of our Vietnamese brothers and sisters that have uh, so blessed us with this gift called pho. Anyone else a lover of pho? Would you go for a bowl of pho right now? You get some pho and you get some pho. I'm just kidding. And uh, no, the, the pho and then there's this, there's all kinds of the Korean soup and like there's, there's an even better Vietnamese soup than pho. If you really want to know, if you want the inside game, I'll introduce you to Bun Bo Hoi sometime. Let's just go. Let's just go and check it out. Uh, the, the, if you ever want to steal my heart, bring me to my favorite Vietnamese restaurant. You know how good, how you know when a restaurant is good? When, like my favorite Vietnamese restaurant, it closes down for a month every year, just shuts it down for a whole month, and then the day it opens up, it's full again. Like, you know what I mean? They're closed right now, and I'm just, I would go for a bowl of my bun bo hue right now. Anybody else have a soup problem? How about a food problem in general? Anybody else have a taco problem? Everybody always talks about tacos. Just a silly little analogy here, but uh, the soup that uh, Esau just couldn't wait for, the soup that he traded in his inheritance for, it's, uh, it's a symbol of something in all our lives. It's a symbol of something that we just think we can't live without, something we think we'll die without, something we think we're entitled to, and uh, giving it up doesn't seem right. It might not be soup for you, probably not. Uh, it might be something else. Um, but most of us have never had to give anything up. Most of us have never missed a meal. Most of us have never gone without. Most of us have our phones sewn to the palms of our hands so that everything is at our fingertips all the time. And we don't really know the meaning of the word no when it comes to our impulses or our appetites. But Esau gave it away for that uh, bowl of soup. And I want you to know what he gave away because this is one of those words that if I don't explain, you won't really understand. So the birthright was um, the privilege of every firstborn son. And so it could mean anything from two-thirds of the family estate to the whole estate of the family. Could have been Esau's. But more than that, and that was a lot because this family was pretty well off by this point, but more importantly, Esau gave up his place. 
He gave up his spot. In the story God began with his grandfather Abraham. I don't know if you all remember from last week, those of you that were here, but God made a bunch of promises to Abraham, Esau's grandfather. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you more descendants than the stars in the sky. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And Esau grew up hearing those stories. Esau and Jacob grew up hearing the stories about what a special thing it was, that their family was set apart to be the vehicle for God's promise, but only one of them could be the heir to that promise. Only one of them could be the one who stands in this gap in this generation to bring that promise forward. And it was supposed to be Esau, but he couldn't resist his momentary urge. And at the expense of something eternal, he said yes to something temporary. And he brought himself to ruin. I just want you to be honest with yourself right now. Think about a time that you've done the same or you've almost done the same. For the sake of something temporary, some momentary pleasure, you've nearly or certainly brought yourself to ruin at the expense of some glory God wants to hand you. It brought to mind uh, this test, this uh, video I'm gonna show you that was uh, kind of a big deal a few years back and I haven't seen it in a while. I thought I would bring it back. It was uh, something that we did to really make fun of children. Uh, but, but other than that, it teaches us a good lesson, too. This is the marshmallow test, so check this out. Okay, so here's the deal. There's a marshmallow. You can either wait, and I'll bring you back another one, so you can have two, or you can eat it now. So you can eat it now, or you can wait, and I'll bring you back two, okay? Okay, I'll be back. Okay, so I have one marshmallow for each of you. Okay, one. And here's the deal. You can either eat it now or you can wait till I get back and you can have two. Okay? okay. So eat it now or wait till I get back and you can have two. And I'll be back in a little bit. If we wait, we, we'll, we'll, you'll get us two? Yep, if you wait, you'll get two. Or you can eat it now, whichever you want. Okay? I'll be back in a little bit. I'm going to wait. What we're gonna do? Are you gonna eat it? Is there one to get one? Or still not gonna get two? But if you wait until she gets back, she'll give you two. She still won't give you two because you ate it. So I didn't eat a single bite. Oh, 
I don't know why, I, uh, if I was a betting man, I would not have bet on that kid in the Dalmatian costume. I don't know why, but he held out, man. And uh, <laughs> the kid, my favorite kid in that video is the one that licks it, because he's having the best of both worlds. <laughs> she told him not to bite it, but he's just licking it. So <laughs> anyway, man, that's a silly, a silly illustration that kind of brings to the surface an inner struggle within all of us. You know that old adage of an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other? It's a little bit like that sometimes. And we don't really see it because we're so steeped in a culture of self-indulgence. You've been told that if you can have something, you should have it your whole life. And so have I. And the Bible would say it's entrapment, that it's a lie from the other side, that just because we can't have something, we should. And we face this struggle all the time. We don't often know there's a trade-off, that saying yes to every temporary pleasure actually comes at a cost. But, but we face this trade-off of the, the temporary temptation of relief in the now versus the promise of permanent joy forever. We face this all the time. But sometimes we don't even, we don't even know what is, uh, what is really at stake when it comes to self-control and self-denial. I was uh, looking this week. I don't really love what I'm about to tell you, but it's true. So I got to tell you, the Bible uh, speaks of self-control Start to finish. Old Testament and New talks about self-denial and the importance of saying no to something that you can have um, just for the sake of living without it. Just because sometimes going without um, is an act of faith. It's an act of discipline. It's a reminder that you're in control of your faculties, that you're not a slave to those kinds of impulses. And so in the Proverbs, King Solomon um, put it this way. He says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without any walls. And in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my, my disciple um, must first deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I think what he's saying here is that after you believe in Jesus, you become a believer, but to become a believer is different than becoming a disciple. If you want to make Jesus your life, if you want to follow him, then it means self-denial. Even if you want something, you sometimes choose not to take it. Even if you can have something, you sometimes choose not to possess it. Just because of what it says, 
Just because, for the sake of discipline and, and, and uh, uh, impulse control. Because when you say no to something, this is, this is what we talk about when we talk about fasting. Fasting isn't a, something you brag about, like, I'm fasting today, I'm such a holy person. No, it's not what it's about. Fasting is about saying yes to God's promises. I trust God, and I feed that appetite more than I feed these momentary appetites of the now. Now, um, that isn't to say that um, you should live a miserable life as a Christian, that, that stuff, um, you should never buy anything, you should never enjoy anything. In fact, it's quite the contrary. In fact, what you learn as a Christian is that less of something is actually more. Sometimes um, it's in the waiting, that in the anticipation, that joy builds up. And sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a person is getting everything they want. Because you never know if you've gotten everything you want. You never know how much you need God. Sometimes that can be the worst trap any of us are in. And I think some of us can probably uh, relate to that kind of thing. It would appear that in many cases you can have something now or you can have a lot more later. You can satisfy some small urge now or you can trust in some greater reward later, right? So you can have a little bit of happiness now, or you can have all of heaven later. And whenever you learn to trust in the promises of God, even though you were forsaking happiness to trust in those promises of God, you find yourself happier, more joyful, because you're living for something more than the momentary. But when the bigger house is all you've been living for, you finally get there and realize this big house is as empty as I am. hell on earth. There's nothing wrong with having a big house. But if that's what you've been living for, you're going to find yourself empty. And I share this with you because I love you. And I want us all to avoid this pitfall of sacrificing some eternal joy for the sake of fulfilling every momentary appetite. So um, we can share in some pleasures now, or we can bask in this greater intimacy later. I think the real question that this story posed for me as I studied it this week has to do with hunger. Like, what are you hungry for? And what appetite are you choosing to feed? You get to make that choice. What appetites take priority? Are you hungry for temporary things that literally come and go? Or are you hungrier for the righteousness of God? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I, I think this might be in his, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, this might be why he said things like, that don't make sense, like blessed are you when you're persecuted, blessed are you when you're poor, blessed are you when you're, when you're hated and despised, and blessed are you when you have nothing, because in those moments of self-denial, you learn to rely on God. So, what are you hungry for? When we look at Jacob and Esau, I know Jacob is not a very savory character. He made that bowl of soup, and he tricked his brother out of his uh, inheritance, and he's not the greatest guy, and we're going to see even worse things that he's going to do in coming weeks. But listen, at least he hungered for the inheritance of God. 
See, the the flaws you find in the Old Testament characters, it's actually good news, not bad. Because God can handle a little bit of uh, moral bankruptcy sometimes. God can handle some moral mistakes. God can take your moral failings. What God can't seem to abide in us is when we are given every opportunity to know him and love him and choose him, and we keep going back to the same pot of soup. We keep going back to the same stuff that fills some momentary spot or space in us. And then we're hungry again. And then we're thirsty again. And then we're empty again. We keep going back again and again. And all the while, he's showing us something better. I could be wrong, but I would venture to guess that this discipline of self-control is probably in terms of the Bible and what Christians are called to do. This is probably the most foreign concept to us because we've lived such good lives, most of us. Not all of us, but most of us. Self-control has never been imposed on us by our circumstances. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're going to have to pursue this according to your own will. You're going to have to chase this because it's not going to be brought to you. You're going to have to decide what it is you're going to give up and how often and how much and why. You're going to have to pursue it. You're going to have to decide that you hunger for God's righteousness more than you hunger for self-indulgence. And it's going to go against every fiber in your being. But I'm telling you, there's something better on the other side. And I don't just mean heaven one day far off in the pearly gates. I mean there's something better on the other side in this life for you. When you choose to deny yourself, this is the mystery of the gospel, that dying to yourself is to what what it really means to really be alive. To know the abundant life of Christ is to lay your life down as a sacrifice for those around you. He lives in that, and he'll bring you to life too. If you felt like something's missing, if you felt like you've got it all, but there's something just that's out of reach or out of place, just not right, maybe this is where it's at for you. Maybe there's something you need to give up. Maybe there's something you've always said yes to, just as an instinct, but now it needs to be a no. Maybe you fast once a week. Maybe not from food, maybe from your phone. Maybe from alcohol, something else. You give something up that hurts. And in those moments of temporary pain, you reach out to God. For God, that says, I trust you. I love you. And I'm living for you. I hunger for you. So guys, whatever that momentary thing is that you go back to again and again, give it up. Rely on your community of faith to get you through those hard times, but say no more to those momentary urges, so you can say yes to the great promise, the inheritance that you have waiting for you in Christ. Would you join me in prayer? God, this is, uh, this is not an easy one, honestly, God, and you know, <laughs> you know what a struggle this has been for me and how hypocritical I feel up here talking about self-control, like I've got that figured out. Lord, uh, none of us really do. We lack discipline sometimes. We lack the kind of trust that would lead us uh, to a more um, responsible and restrained life. 
Lord, we died to who we were so we can live as the people you're calling us to be. God, I'm praying right now for the people in this room right now who have been going back to that same thing, to that same substance, to that same relief, to that same food, to that same store, to that same outlet, to that same website, to have some urge filled or some need filled. A moment later, they're empty again. I pray for those who are well aware of the struggle before them. And I pray for the wherewithal, the courage, your strength to enter in and give us a vision for this new promise you've given us, this new future you have for us, this inheritance that is ours if we'll take it. Help us, God, to choose freedom over the things that are fleeting, to choose forever things over these momentary things. God, um, it won't be easy, but we trust in you, and we love you, and we hunger for you more than anything. In Jesus' name, amen.